This is Help Wanted, the show that tackles all the big work questions you cannot ask anyone else. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And I'm New York Times bestselling author and money expert, Nicole Lappin. The helpline is open. Working with friends sounds awesome, doesn't it? I mean, you're already friends, so it's already fun being together. And now you're going to make money together, too, and avoid all the stress and nonsense of working with people you don't like. That's the idea anyway. And, you know, there's science to support it. A recent study showed that being friendly with your coworkers boosts overall happiness, though that isn't taking into account whether those people were friends before you met them at work and became friendly. But anyway point is, it sounds like it could be great. And it can be. But being friends, taking friendships and turning them into work partnerships can also lead to really bad and stressful work that can destroy the friendship. So how do you avoid that? That is what today's caller, Will, is trying to navigate. Here's our conversation. Will, thanks for joining Help Wanted. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jason. You have a new business. You've got questions. Let me hear them. So the new business is called Word on the Block. We are an influencer marketing platform that allows brands to find, vet, and manage creator talent for their marketing efforts. We deliver some of the lowest cost for those creator campaigns in the market today. And we're really a creator-first platform, meaning we are trying to find ways for creators to better monetize their presence online and their audiences to these brands. Got it. Okay, so that's what the company is. Big opportunity because obviously a lot of brand dollars being spent on influencers types. So what is the problem or what is the question? I'd say we have a couple of challenges. This is a company that two of my friends from college started and I joined on with them. And I think part of the challenge we run into is the fact that we are all friends first and business partners second. So I'm curious if you have any advice on managing that dynamic and the overall idea of working with your friends on a business venture. First of all, let's just get some specifics here. How long have you all been working together on this? Yeah, so the company's been around for about two years now. I came on about eight months ago. Mm. So there were two friends who started this and they ran it for a year and change and then you joined. And now, is it really like the three of you? Is it just, is it a co-founder trio situation? Do you have anyone else involved? There are really two co-founders, my friends, Seth and Jake, and then they've added two others of our friends to the more core team. I'm definitely more of an advisor, part-time type employee for the company. I have a full-time position with a company called Weave Grid as an account executive uh, doing electric vehicle software sales. This okay. is more my side hustle passion project working with okay. these friends of mine. But yeah, they've been working really hard on it for the past year, trying to scale up the number of creators available on the platform, as well as uh, signing up new brands to spend with us. So what we have here is we have a startup that, as it keeps growing, continues to roll existing friends into the infrastructure. And so right now, it's just a very in-network kind of growth. Everybody Mm -hmm. who's involved already knows each other. Everybody's already friends. Has there been any conflict? There's definitely some different working styles at play and some 
disagreements over the best way to proceed forward on certain questions like how to price the deals that we launch with brands or if our focus should be primarily on brands versus creators. Describe to me whatever you would consider to be the worst experience so far working with these friends. (laughs) What was the disagreement? How did it go? How did it get resolved? Maybe it's still not resolved. I think a recent example is we were having a really long, drawn-out meeting where we were covering a lot of ground, discussing a lot of different things and big, important questions on the direction of the company. But we were not doing a very good job of taking any notes or putting anything down that would allow us to action on the conversation after the fact. And I got a little frustrated with the group. And I I think I said something to the effect of, guys, this is so amateurish. How can we be running a company like this? Before I tell you what I think was going on, tell me what the reaction was from any of your friends slash colleagues to you saying, this is amateur hour. There was definitely some defensiveness at first, but with a little time removed after the meeting, I think the point definitely sunk in as there's been a lot more focus on documentation and actually keeping track of the big things that we're talking about and you know these different problems that we're trying to solve right now. And we're definitely taking a more systematic approach to documenting, putting a plan into place, and then following up on it to actually be able to evaluate the effectiveness. So I think it was a good kick in the pants in some ways. I mean, good for you for saying so, because possibly nobody else in the room would have. And what you're solving for yourself here, but I'm just going to put a real point on it for anybody, is I think one of the first things that are required for any business, but I think it's especially true when there is an existing dynamic among the people who are working there, which is systems. Startup founders often think that systems are the thing that are going to quash creativity and big thinking. And what they come to learn, of course, is that systems actually do the opposite. Systems create the structures in which you can be creative and actually build and grow. I remember the first time this really sank in for me was when I talked to this guy who had started a watch refurbisher and reseller. So, you know, you you have a nice watch and you sell it to them and they'll fix it up and send it. I don't know. I don't wear a watch. I can't say (laughs) anything more about this company. But the problem that he had was that he had been putting more and more hours into this business and feeling more and more stressed. And he couldn't figure out why more energy was not equaling more growth. And he was feeling alienated from the people that he worked with, who were not his friends, but he had aspired to have good relationships with them. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. And so he decided to bring on a chief operating officer, which he had never done before. And that chief operating officer, just for funsies, has a background as a military drill sergeant. So, you know, somebody who can really come in and crack the whip. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that the drill sergeant did was had this founder write on a whiteboard everything that they do, every service that they provide, every single thing that he has said yes to. And then they looked at it and they realized that this company is being pulled in a million directions. And he has said yes to far too many things. 
And as a result, he has not been able to really focus his energy on the things that are going to be most impactful because he keeps siphoning off energy to the other stuff that isn't as impactful. And so that, for example, would include that they were saying yes to refurbishing these very rare antique watches that they weren't really structured to do, which means that they now had to do a whole bunch of research and maybe find some expert to do it. And then the resale value of that watch did not at all compensate them for the amount of time that was being invested in it. So they had to just start saying no to a ton of stuff, just scratching things off and creating a hyper focus. And what you're describing is an early awareness that that's necessary. And I would say it's more necessary with friends because friends can just hang out. And it's very easy for you guys to be in a room and for it to just start feeling like you're hanging out. When you're hanging out, nobody's taking notes. You don't take notes when you're hanging out at your apartment. but When you're running a business, you sure better, and you sure better have a system. And also, you also need some kind of structure, even if there are five of you, some kind of hierarchy of who is ultimately in charge of something, who owns a particular idea or decision, who's going to make that decision. And if you don't have that, then you're going to sit around and you're going to talk about stuff and absolutely nothing's going to happen. And then you're all just going to get frustrated at each other. So good on you for creating systems. What has happened since then? I don't want to come off as sounding like I'm the only one giving this feedback to the team. There are definitely other members of the group who share these thoughts and and have shared them in the past. And the big changes have been, as I mentioned, on the, the documentation side of things. And so actually like putting thoughts down in a format that you can then come back to a few days to a few weeks later and actually know what we were talking about, have a clear identification of the plan that we were trying to execute on. And then also a clear understanding of what success looks like from those outcomes. Tell me about disagreements. How have you guys handled them? Generally, very directly, which I think is both a pro and con of of working with your friends. You know, there isn't a lot of internal politics within the group, given both the size and the comfort level we have with each other. There is a lot of discussion that goes on when people don't, align on what we think we need to do next. And most of that is very fruitful. I think when it does come down to a real point of contention or a disagreement, there's really two ways that we go about it. One is kind of look to others in the space to see what we can do based on what has worked for other people. So using a little bit of outside advice in that regard. And then two, going to non-companies, but other people in the industry who we respect. So for example, we've brought on uh, another person that we know from college uh, as an advisor. <laughs> more friends. But yes, yeah. more friends, but at least he is well-equipped and, and has a lot of experience in the digital marketing, digital advertising space, having created a company in marketing technology and exited that within the last year or two. So looking to folks like that to really offer us some expert advice. has. The phrase agree to disagree ever appeared in conversation? I think that has come up once or twice. What happened as a result? I don't think we ever solved that problem, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. So I ask because I want to tell you about a conversation that I had recently that I found totally fascinating. So there's this community company called Smart Passive Income, very successful, and The co-founders are these guys, Pat and Matt. And Pat was always a agree to disagree guy because he thought that that is the civilized way to handle a disagreement. 
And Matt had co-founded many companies before and introduced Pat to the concept not of agree to disagree, but rather of disagree and commit. Ever hear of it? Hmm. No, I haven't. So disagree and commit is a thing that's been around since the 80s. A lot of people attribute it falsely to Jeff Bezos because it showed up in a shareholder letter a number of years ago. But anyway, the idea is this, that during the process of making a decision, everybody should feel free to weigh in, share their opinion, disagree. But somebody has to be the decision maker. And once that decision is made, everyone has to commit to its success. The idea is like, we want to create a culture in which everyone feels heard and everyone can influence the ultimate decision. But once that decision is made, everybody has to commit to it working. And I know that that can sound theoretical, but it's so different from agree to disagree because agree to disagree is fine. It's on you. Agree to disagree is I'm going to step back and wait for this to fail because I know that it will. And honestly, kind of, I want it to fail because then I'm going to feel better that I disagree. And disagree and commit is I am with you on making this thing work or I trust you enough that even though I don't think that this is the right decision, I believe in your decision-making abilities and therefore I am on your side. And that little reframe has helped them tremendously, they said, because to them, it all comes down to, and I think that this is going to be a thing that you guys are going to think about a lot as you build this company, the stakes are high. They're high when you're working with friends because you now have two intersecting but also completely different relationships that are on the line. Eventually, if this company grows, you will at some point theoretically run out of friends to hire and you're going to have to hire people on the outside. And then those people will have made decisions to leave something else that they were doing and start to work with you. And their livelihoods are now on the line as well. And eventually you'll have people who maybe have kids and who have more complicated lives and more complicated finances. And now the stakes are very high. And that is what Pat and Matt told me about, which was that the reason why they believe so deeply in disagree and commit is because ultimately they know that if they just let disagreements fester, it can erode the central relationship that the entire company is built upon, which is theirs. And if that falls apart, then a lot of people get hurt. Customers get hurt, employees get hurt. And it all comes down to how do we think ahead of time before we have disagreements about what we're going to do during those disagreements. So I would suggest that that's a conversation that's worth having. As the company grows, the disagreements are going to become harder because the stakes are going to become larger if you don't have a structure for how to handle disagreements and to just talk about what's going to happen as a result and whose distinct role and responsibility is it to handle this or that thing and who ultimately is the one to make decisions and how do we all know that it's time to commit to making that thing a success, then even if you have systems for recording things and for executing things, you're not going to have a system in place for what to do when everyone just wants to do something different. And that will be the thing that ultimately blows everything up. 
we do fall into that trap of lacking a clear decision maker and, and lacking an ultimate kind of authority figure. Although we have a CEO and a CTO who are those two co-founders I mentioned, given the dynamics of the group at play, I think there's some hesitancy for any one individual to quote unquote micromanage or be a little too firm in their particular point of view, because we want everybody's voice to be heard and we want everybody to feel like they're part of the decision-making process. But ultimately, if we are constantly in the decision-making process and never actually making a decision, that doesn't serve anybody's needs either. Then you're in decision paralysis, where everyone just sits around having not made a decision. And it's worth, if you all haven't, having a conversation with your CEO about the expectations of the CEO and the expectations for everyone who is not the CEO. Because it's weird to impose a hierarchy among a bunch of friends when there was no existing hierarchy. But now there has to be someone whose job is to make the decisions, which means that that friend, what's your CEO's name? Seth. Seth has to feel like he can be the CEO. And that's a weird place for him to be because that means that he is ultimately going to have to make decisions and possibly overrule people who are friends of his. And he doesn't want to do that. And I get it because you're all friends. And what you really want is just for everybody to agree on the direction and then to do it so that he never actually has to be the leader who says yes or no. But I will tell you, having been for now a while, a leader who doesn't honestly love being a leader all that much. I like being able to express my opinion. And I like, this is me as the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. I have a team. I'm the boss. And my team, almost all of them are people who I had worked with in some previous capacity. When it was time to hire someone, the first thing I did was I thought, who have I worked with before who's awesome? who I know I can trust, who I can bring onto this team, and then I know that they're going to be self-motivating talent. I don't have the time to micromanage anybody. So I need people who can work within my team structure, and my team structure is creative freedom. So I need someone who's really good with creative freedom. What I have found in being the leader of this team for long enough is that somebody has to make decisions. And so even though maybe I will make a decision that somebody doesn't love, they are happy that we didn't sit around and talk about it forever. They're happy that we're moving forward. And I've had to tell team members who I think very highly of that we're not going to do a thing that they wanted to do or that I'm killing a story that they worked on for a very long time and they are unhappy with it. But after a day or two, they say, all right, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Somebody has to be the leader. And Seth is the leader, which means that there needs to be a open and honest conversation about, look, we're all friends and we're going to value these relationships and we don't ever want to be bad colleagues. But in this structure, there is a leader. And Seth, it's you. And we will disagree with you until a decision is made and then we will commit to that decision because anything other than that will be chaos and everyone will hate each other. I do think that conversation would be super valuable and is something that we should sit down as a group and actually talk through. Stick around. Help Wanted will be right back. 
Nicole, have you ever thought about the one that got away? Jason, I am happily in a relationship. You know that. No, the hire that got away. Someone that you thought was perfect for your team, but ah, they were already with another employer. Oh, well, in that case, yeah, I think about her all the time. Well, it's not too late. You can reach out to that person on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals that you can't find anywhere else, even people who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Okay, looks like it's time for me to shoot my shot. Do it. And I know you may have your heart set on one person, but if you do want to open it up and post a role to a bigger applicant pool, you can do it for free at linkedin.com slash help wanted. And because there are so many professionals on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. So you'll never have a one that got away again. Incredible. That's linkedin.com slash help wanted. Yep. LinkedIn.com slash help wanted. Terms and conditions apply. Happy hiring ever after. Nicole, have you ever thought about the one that got away? Jason, I am happily in a relationship. You know that. No, the hire that got away. Someone that you thought was perfect for your team, but ah, they were already with another employer. Oh, well, in that case, yeah, I think about her all the time. Well, it's not too late. You can reach out to that person on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals that you can't find anywhere else, even people who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Okay, looks like it's time for me to shoot my shot. Do it. And I know you may have your heart set on one person, but if you do want to open it up and post a role to a bigger applicant pool, you can do it for free at linkedin.com slash help wanted. And because there are so many professionals on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. So you'll never have a one that got away again. Incredible. That's linkedin.com slash help wanted. Yep. LinkedIn.com slash help wanted. Terms and conditions apply. Happy hiring ever after. Welcome back to Help Wanted. Let's get to it. The core group of the company are not necessarily experts in digital marketing. So we're trying to build a company in a space that isn't super familiar for all of us. And I think that is part of where some of our decision paralysis also stems from is not having a clear expert in the room whose opinion could outweigh everyone else's. So I'm curious from your perspective, if you have any advice on ways to quickly get that set of knowledge such that people could be a little more expert on the industry and we would have somebody who is clearly well-informed enough to kind of make these decisions or at least push these decisions for us. I think that that has to start with understanding what your value proposition is that's distinct from everyone else's. You're in a really crowded space. And I have heard of many companies that do what you do. And so the first question that anyone is going to ask you is, why you and not somebody else? That, of course, is a question about what your company does. But deeper underneath it is this thing that you're highlighting, which is that 
the team that you've assembled is not oriented around an expert who has like a singular vision of how to operate in this space differently. And I would say the best that you can do is, and this is not a consolation prize, this is actually a very good thing, is utilize that as an asset. <laughs> I was just talking to this guy whose name is Naveen Jain. He's a billionaire. He's started a whole bunch of companies. Every company that he's ever started was in an industry that he didn't know anything about. He said that he's guided by these three questions. Why this? Why now? Why me? And the breakdown here is why this is why this problem? Is there a market need for it? Am I solving somebody's problem? And then why now is what about right now enables me to do the most impactful thing? Because right now is a different time than five years ago in influencer marketing and social media. And there's got to be some new tools or technologies or ways people are thinking or interacting or expectations, something you have to be harnessing that's distinct to right now. And then why me isn't about do I have the experience and the knowledge set, but rather am I able to ask questions that other people aren't thinking to ask? Am I able to bring a perspective to this that people from inside the industry aren't seeing because they think that they're experts and therefore they're going to overlook the kinds of stuff that I'm willing to question? And that's what you have because none of you are inside experts in this arena, which may feel like a disadvantage, but the advantage is that you have clear eyes. You can go into a situation and identify something weird that people do that doesn't make any sense or opportunities or things that people are complaining about that other people aren't taking seriously or some just problems that really need solving. And that's going to mean that you have to get down on a ground floor level with your users, which is going to be because you're a marketplace, both the influencers and the brands, and you're going to have to have conversations with them, not about how they're already doing the thing that they're doing, because that's what an expert in the space would know, but what is wrong about what they're doing? What are the problems that nobody is solving? And then you can start to build from there and identify new opportunities. And that answers the why me. So yeah, you don't have an expert in-house. That's fine. I think that that's good because the dynamic would be even more complicated if you had like one person who really knew the space and therefore every time that you had a conversation, that person would eventually chime in and everyone would be like, oh, well, I guess Steve knows the answer and we'll just do what Steve says. And then Seth is no longer the CEO. Seth is just the guy who like rubber stamps what Steve said halfway through the meeting. So instead, what we need to do here is start to divide this team up in tasks and send people out to really understand this space in a way that other people don't because what you guys have is fresh eyes and a willingness to question. It's nice to hear that the things that we perceive to be a disadvantage could be reframed as an advantage. I guess a follow-up question about being in front of the users, both on the creator side and on the advertiser side, the brand side, who ultimately is responsible for figuring out the relative merit of what they are hearing from those frontline folks. I have a little bit of past experience as a product manager, and basically the whole job was to talk to users, get feedback, and then prioritize the different pieces of feedback for action as a company. And I think one of the challenges that we have right now is, you know, coming back to that 
unclear decision structure and, and ultimately who should be the prioritizer. There is plenty to be said for ultimately bringing in authorities in particular areas. If you know, for example, that you need help on the sales side, connecting with brands, it's really helpful to find someone who has really great relationships with brands. It's gonna save you a lot of time. But to your question that you just asked about prioritization, can you describe a kind of use case problem? One of our challenges is simple resource constraints. And you know we can only build certain new features so quickly. And so there's kind of two big questions that we are dealing with right now. One is a question of how should we price our engagements between a per engagement with creator model versus a more blended model where the advertiser is getting, you know, a price per a thousand views on a video. And then a second question is really where to focus in terms of those next set of features. Should it be on the creator side and making their job of working with brands easier? Or should it be on the brand side, focus on, you know, making it easier to evaluate success of a campaign. This is a perfect place where, you know, bringing real authority into the team can be helpful because these are the kinds of questions that a product growth manager could really help. I'm hearing at the root of these questions is that what would be incredibly helpful would be a stronger pipeline to the users themselves because you want to be making sure that you're building something not just for your users, but with your users. I think that if you had a system by which you were talking to people, they felt like you were really building it for and with them. Always in this kind of subject, always think of this guy named Keith Kroc, who was the chairman and CEO of DocuSign at some point. And then previous to that, had built this company called Ariba that was sold for billions of dollars. And his whole philosophy is you start by building something for a small group of people, and then you formalize your relationship with those people by calling it an advisory council. So your first customers are part of your advisory council and you are building it for them and you're checking in with them very regularly. And you're making it clear to them that like you are building this for them. You want to know what exactly they want and you're going to build that because of course, those are then going to be the people who are going to tell other people they're going to become your megaphone. And then the next set of customers also get added to the advisory council. And so you end up growing, growing, growing this whole ecosystem of people who are giving you the kind of feedback that you're building directly into the product. And then they're amplifying the product for other people. It's a very smart strategy. And so when I'm hearing you describe what the challenges are of figuring out what to build next, the first thing I want to know is, well, what are your users telling you? What are the things that are going to matter the most to them? And then how are you balancing those against what just a path to growth looks like so that you know that creating these kinds of features are going to allow for this level of growth? That's where a real product person can help. So if you have a friend who's a great hmm. product person. We actually do on the team currently. <laughs> so shout out Aton as our uh, acting product lead. He is in a similar position to me that he's not full-time with the company. So I think part of our challenge is that we have also these part-time contributors and it's a little less clear the responsibility for the part-time folks versus the full-time folks. Um, and so again, coming back to that, you know, having that sit-down conversation, clearly spelling out expectations for everybody from CEO down to the people who are contributing only part-time, I think would really help us. Yeah, well, I think you nailed it there. It all comes down to what are the systems that you've put in place? And 
just listening to your answer there, I think tells you a lot about the downside in a way of working with friends. It can be such an upside. And what you have is you have built-in trust, a shared mission. You have probably a lot of sacrifice. People are willing to just throw themselves into something because they believe in their friends. But the downside of that is that you are bringing with you the freedom and flexibility and laid backness of friendship, which can become baggage in a company. And so it's all the more complicated. You've got a CEO who we're just assuming is probably feeling a little bit torn about being the leader of friends. You've got a team that is not used to taking orders from one of your friends. Now you've also got a whole bunch of different kinds of engagements where some of the friends are full-time, some of the friends are part-time, and now they don't know exactly how to weigh each other's value or contributions against the other and when they're supposed to do something. And all of this means that this great thing that you have by being friends and the trust that you have for each other is not actually being utilized properly because you don't have the systems in place to make sure that everyone is able to contribute what they can and they know what everyone else is going to be doing. So the starting point, I think, has to be a big old friend powwow where everyone says, we are friends, but we got to build a company here. And to build a company means that when we're here, we all really like each other, but also we have roles and responsibilities. And we better make that clear before anything else happens or else this is just going to get more and more confusing. Thank you, Jason. Wish we could bring you in to moderate said conversation, but <laughs> hopefully this episode will serve as the context for that. Uh, thanks again for having me on. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Help Wanted is a production of Money News Network. Help Wanted is hosted by me, Jason Pfeiffer. And me, Nicole Lappin. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. If you want some help, email our helpline at helpwanted at moneynewsnetwork.com for the chance to have some of your questions answered on the show. And follow us on Instagram at Money News and TikTok at Money News Network for exclusive content and to see our beautiful faces. Maybe a little dance? Oh, I didn't sign up for that. All right. Well, talk to you soon. 